I think Afterlife fits perfectly. It's got one leg in City of Evil and one leg in the White Album. I think it just captures everything from that era very well. It's <laughs> a weedly goddammit. That riff is the product of a drummer trying to come up with a riff and then having guitar players transcribe it. We just went in there and had fun. Ah, what are you doing? We're trying to write hits. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Tracks. This is the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast, the show that's taking you through the band's entire back catalogue, one track at a time. I am your host, Bees, and there's going to be no rambling intro. We are getting straight into the beating heart of Afterlife. self-titled album was the first time that the band had taken over production credits for a full-length release and this was also a real period of coming-of-age songwriting from Jimmy the Rev Sullivan. We discuss his influence on the song while being under the influence I might add during a special trip to the mountains. There's much talk of Weedleys but we start with how the band felt about the song ahead of the release of the self-titled album and the first single was Yep, almost easy. But the band, however, wanted to take you all with them into the afterlife. Afterlife had the dueling guitars, had the big chorus, had all these things. And yeah, we, you know, um, and Tom Wally, who ran the label at the time, he was nothing but great to us. And this was just came down to an opinion of his that seemed to sway things in a different direction. And, and that opinion, you know, we were playing the record for them at first. And at the time we were doing a, a Halloween EP that we wanted to do something like AFI had done with their Halloween EP. And I think it was a little piece of heaven and dancing dead were on that. And maybe like crossroads was going to be on that, but I guess we're trying to do the spookier songs or whatever. So we're playing them this record. And so we're thinking, okay, like we're going to play afterlife and it's the no brainer lead single, what you start with on the record. And I remember playing it for him. I don't remember at what order we played it for him, but I remember playing it for him and everyone in there, I remember it was like, um, there's a the radio department, Rob Goldclang and Heather Luke and 
and Grover and um, Tom and Craig Aronson, everyone was in there and they all really enjoyed that song. And I remember Tom Wally turning around going, oh, it sounds a little Warp Tour-ish. Like not as a compliment, you know, like sort of like, I guess saying like it's poppy. It's like a little poppy, a little cheesy. And as soon as um, he said that, it just seemed everybody at the label got off it, right? It was like, oh yeah, like a little, a little warp tourish, like a little, little poppy, a little sugary. He heard the melody. He just didn't think it was the right song, and it kind of threw us all back a bit, to be honest, because we thought, you know, it was at that time there was the Mike Hems of the world, and they were these big, you know, Helena choruses that were blowing up, and we thought we have our own super melodic Avenged Sevenfold song that's true to ourselves. Um, and we thought that the label would appreciate that and they didn't. And looking back on it, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think we've ever made a wrong decision, but it's one of those things where you have to trust your intuition, which is what we do now. There's when we have a song, there's not even a discussion or if there is with the label or management, it's the world's shortest discussion because we know exactly what we're putting out because we know our fans better. And, at that time, we were a little bit more influential when it came to what song was going on the radio. MTV was big at the time, and um, the K-Rocks of the world were playing bands like us. So it was more of a, you really don't want to make a misstep this early in your career. And so you're a little more influential. And now that we're older, it's like we have always been right about our intuition. It would have been fun to see what would have happened had we stayed the course and, you know, maybe just trusted ourselves. If the goal is promoting something, then I think you need to make prudent decisions based on that. You know, it doesn't, it's not like it involved band time and we had to show up at these places and do different types of press that we weren't into. It's just like, somebody's going to fucking plug the song into this ecosystem and it could gain a lot of fans. And I thought Afterlife had the best potential to do that. Almost easy as a, as a single to to release when you're trying to keep your edge and you're trying to show the world this is, you know, this is who we are. But, you know, for our fans, they're going to get the entire record. And that's the whole point. That's why we spend the years doing these things. Um, and I thought Afterlife, I think we all felt like Afterlife had bigger potential across a myriad of genres. It's easy to see why, even having lived with the album since its 2007 release, that chorus is such a standout moment, not only on this record, but it's a standout moment in this band's legacy. The word I always think of when it comes to this chorus is undeniable. You put the chorus to Afterlife in literally any era of hard rock and metal history and it would remain undeniable. In fact, we asked Johnny Christ about the first time he heard the song and that chorus and here's what he had to say. I can remember vividly the first time Jimmy played that uh, chorus for me. I was actually at uh, Val Michelle's parents' house uh, in the harbor 
uh, where Brian was living uh, and Matt at, at times. And uh, there was a keyboard in one of the rooms and Jimmy uh, just started, it was in the middle of the day and like Jimmy just started like playing the, 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 the chords. And then like, he's like, what do you think of this? And I think, I think maybe even Zachy was there. Don't quote me on that. It was a while ago. And he was like, just like feeling us out. Like, I think, I think he'd probably already showed Matt and Brian, uh, but it was the first time I had heard it. And I just, I remember he's playing it on the keyboard and like kind of mumbling the melody, you know, like singing it, but kind of mumbling it too. And I was just like, oh, that's good. Like, that's, that's really good. Like, <laughs> I was like holy shit. It, is this for, is this for us? The reason why I like it is, for me, it's just, it's not, it doesn't go overboard on the catchiness. It's just something that, like, you hear and you go, like, damn, that's a really good melody. Like, that's, 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 that's what it is to me. You know, we like good, catchy melodies, but sometimes, like, there's been some in the past that, uh, that uh, any member has brought and been like, oh, that's a little too, it's a little too cute, it's a little too sugary. We need to, we need to mellow that out a little bit. But this one was not that. <laughs> I think it is sugary. I think when we were first writing, and this you got to think, this is it's our fourth record in, but at the same time, we would really gear towards big hooks, right? Like, I would say the chorus in Afterlife is sort of like the chorus in, like, Nightmare. Um, like, where they're sugary. They're like sing-along bops, you know? And then there's a melodic undertone to it that, could be a pop song. You could take that and refurbish it into, you know, I don't belong here, gotta move on, dear. It's just so poppy. I wouldn't disagree. It's just, to me, there's depth. Um, so I won't name other pop artists, but to me, like, Britney Spears is depthy. Like, that does not, that that gives me goosebumps. That doesn't make me allergic to, to pop. Um, it brings me in and wants me to to be a better songwriter and, and the, I mean, it's, it's poppy. I get it, but it's, it's dark. It's brooding. It's the, the lyrical content, um, is, is very, very serious. It's very thoughtful. It's not just a, it, it actually kind of meanders a little bit, almost to the point where it's too much. And then it brings you back in. It's a very, very clever, very brilliant melody, <clears throat> but yeah, it's very, very, pop pleasing to the ear, you know, but to me, it's, uh, it's got all the depth, um, and the different colors that, that make it not too sugary. It was a hundred percent in the right direction for the song. And I would have put up any kind of battle that I could to make sure that it made its way onto the album because I loved it. And I've never been scared of being melodic. I don't feel the need to, to be heavy and tough. You just every song lends itself to what it what it needs to become, and I, I I don't really think of that chorus as super pop. I think of it as super, just beautiful, and it makes you feel a certain way, and it brings you into this different realm um, of melody, and just kind of encompasses you. So for me, it, it wasn't like we were throwing the super pop chorus. I, I felt like Beast and the Harlot had 
like a super pop chorus that kind of was never my favorite thing. But with Afterlife, it was the first song that we had written for the self-titled album. I was very, very excited because before that, there's a lot of ideas getting thrown around. And I was getting kind of nervous, to be honest, for the first time in our career, you know, because we're a heavy band and, you know, we had melodic elements and songs like Unholy and more screaming. But the stuff we were coming up with was more like rocking. There's some like some weird shit going on. And I was kind of in a panic mode. And then all of a sudden this song kind of put me back down in a comfortable spot. And I'm, I'm glad it did because I was kind of worried for a while. I don't think something like that would make it today in Avenged Sevenfold, but I'm grateful for at that time and place, we were focusing on writing poppier, more melodic elements. Um, you hear it in Second Heartbeat, you hear it in like Unbound and Lost. It's just a mindset, right? Like either you're cool with that and you're like totally, I just think the mindset in this band has changed a little bit. And I think that goes to a lot of people, like when people say, oh, I like Old Avenged, like these four records, which are all vastly different. What they're really saying is the melodic choices are a much more dark and we would call it serious, but doesn't serious seems derogatory towards pop. Mm. It's just a different type of melody that we're going for now. And that's really the shift that they're hearing where we're trying to stay away from something that just sounds like you got powdered sugar all over it. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think afterlife is a prime example of, and that's what Tom was picking up on. Right. And then there's a bunch of bands that do it. And it was really big for a while there. There's emo and pop punk that exploded during that time. And this kind of lived in that world because of the melodic choices we made. Not to say it's bad or good. It's just to say that's that's not the prerogative at this point. I see a distant light. My girl, this can't be right. Such a surreal place to see. So how did this come to be? Arrived too early. I think perhaps my favourite thing about tracks is when we can take you into real magic moments in the band's history where the guys' personalities and the music that we love smash into one another like your mum and dad when you're out for the night. Get your popcorn and strap in because while we may have discussed the chorus of Afterlife and how it's the size of a titan's leg, uh, the verse to this song... It's fucking weird, right? Here's Sin on how the songwriting trip of a lifetime and a shit-faced drummer whose drinking skills are only outstripped by songwriting chops resulted in the verse that we all know and love. Matt would drag us to his fucking cabin. And <laughs> some of us liked it. Me, I I struggle with the, the writing cycle. We all have our own things, right? Matt needs a break. At that time, we're, you know, in our third record. 
you know, fourth for them, third record for me riding at his mom's house. And to me, when she's coming out with milk and cookies and water, it's like, ma, what are you doing? We're trying to write hits. And I mean, and this is after we're like number one on TRL, City of Evil has been out like, and we're still riding in his mom's fucking garage. It's, it's just, it's amazing to be honest. And, and they're the, they're the most incredible parents. So, so supportive. Um, yeah, to give him absolute, like actual real estate, big real estate to write and, and even rehearse. It's big enough to rehearse and stuff, um, at their houses is beyond generous anyway. So for me, it's amazing. It's right around the block and we just go there and we grind and we just, we just, you know, fucking hit factory, baby. And after, you know, a couple of months of it, he gets fucking stir crazy. They have this beautiful uh, cabin in Big Bear. It's two and a half hours away. It's not like it's that crazy of a, of a distance, but I like to finish my work and then go drink with my, my wife. This was way pre-kids, a few years into our relationship, and, and my wife and I are still inseparable. We're always fighting to get rid of the kids so we can go on date nights and stuff. And we do love our kids, but, you know, we're best friends. And, um, and it was fresh into the relationship, and I didn't want to go do something that was difficult for me anyway. Writing is always challenging. I don't sleep well. Um, I don't really enjoy it until the end and it starts to come together. It's very, it's very tough for me. It's not a natural process for me. Um, so we go to Big Bear and I'm a bump on the log and Matt's just trying to get everybody into it. You know, he's loving it up there. And, and a lot of the guys don't, don't kind of care. They're, they're whatever about it, but Jimmy loves it, you know? Um, cause he wants to hang with the boys and, and fucking drink at night. And good God, did we, we drink a ton every night, but that, that made it worse the next day. I'd be brutally hung over and then time to fucking go to work. And the thing is we all have access to each other. So if, if people have questions, I'm right there, <laughs> you know, like fucking, how do I do this with this court? It's like, it's, it's nonstop. There are no parameters and no nothing. So there's like a few days in, even Jimmy at this point is a little worse for the wear. We're all worn out. Um, I'm on one couch, just fucking dead lethargic. He's on the other couch. And of course, Matt is, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed. And he wants to get, um, into this song. Um, and to Matt's credit, cause I've been kind of poking fun at him. He championed, this was like Jimmy's first full integration and stuff where he's writing his own songs. Matt absolutely championed that beyond, uh, well beyond anybody else. I feel like I championed it before. Like, come write with us, Jimmy. Come write, do this thing. You're the greatest songwriter on the planet. You're my favorite songwriter. You should be doing vocals and stuff. And like, no, 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 I don't, I don't know how to write for it. So he did it. And then once he did, Matt was like, oh my God, these songs are just, give the, our album so much depth. I, I didn't even know that he would, he could write these types of like pop rock sort of tunes. Um, and then it was our job to kind of make it a little bit more adventurous. So yeah, he, you know, he had struggled with the, uh, with the verse, you know, he was like, I, I want these weedleys. And this was back at home. I want these weedleys. I'm like, what the fuck are weedleys? Like just, you know, you got the song. It's brilliant. Like, yes, that's it. I was like fully fucking joking around and we, okay, weedleys. And then, you know, we're all trying to fuck with melodies and usually he writes everything. And this one just had some holes in it. Um, I think the the bridge a little bit, the solo section and and the verse. He knew he wanted the Wheatleys, so 
I fucking shat out some Wheatleys and he fucking loved it. It was pretty funny. And now it's like, what do we do? And so Matt and I are like, you know, thinking maybe a little bit too traditionally. I won't put that on, on Matt. I forget exactly what he was singing. I know I was kind of in the traditional vein. So, I mean, we're just sitting there. I'm, I'm done. I'm fucking tired. I can't think of anything. I just want Jimmy to write this fucking thing. I just want to go home. And, and he's like, I, I know what to do with this. And he's just like, imagine this guy. And he's just like laying on this couch, fucking dead, hung over for the third day in a row. And he's just starts singing this amazing story about a guy on a couch that, you know, is engulfed in flames. His house is engulfed in flames and he can't fucking do anything about it. And he just starts singing. What's the deal with this fire? Put it out. I'm too tired. And it's just Matt and I are fucking cracking up. And again, to Matt's credit, he's like, that's it. We're doing that. And I'm like, mortified. Like, I just heard, what's the deal with this fire? Put it out. I'm too tired. I don't know what you heard, Matt, but that's what I heard. I, I don't know about that. And then Matt's like, dad, 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 and it like hit. I'm like, holy shit. Like walking into a dream. So unlike what you've seen. So unsure, but it seems. Like they've been waiting for you. Falling into this place. Just giving you a small taste. Of your afterlife here, so stay. You'll be back as soon anyway. I mean, I, I just remember us sitting there and... It was a joke. Yeah, like Jimmy was just, we were just messing around and and like we just thought it was so funny. And then everything we'd work on that was serious just wasn't as cool. And so then it was like, okay, well, we're going to do that, I guess. Um, and then, I mean, if you think about it, there's like three major parts. And then there's... And that's kind of like, I don't know, it's very like uplifting and cool. And then the chorus is just sugar pop. And then... The the joke of of the the verse really is a counterweight to the poppiness of that chorus. And again, it's moments like this in our career that we've learned from where sometimes those silly things that pop into your head are the best thing. Cause because I don't know how else you get to that. Like it's almost like you have to be throwing out a joke to get to that. Cause no one's gonna come and say, like here, can you imagine like being like in a Nashville like writers group and you roll in and you're just like <laughs> you got your acoustic guitar and you're like what's the deal with that band like it just like you just never would and um so that's where i think we can differentiate ourselves as being allowing ourselves to have those moments and just leave them it was a special place and whether we were amped on coffee or actually drunk or hung over as a byproduct from being really drunk the night before. Um, all of those different vibes engendered some pretty incredible music and, and really brought out some stuff. But the Afterlife Verse was certainly the funniest fucking thing and how it manifested from just guys that were barely able to fucking stand into one of the coolest, most unique verses on that and melodies on that record. Sorry, not sorry, had to get as much juice as possible out of that particular story. And while, as promised, we'll be talking about Weedleys again later on, I wanted to ask Zaki about the riff in the verse and how it came to be. And when doing so, it actually led down a rabbit hole discussing Jimmy's brilliance and his rising prominence as a songwriter within the band. 
that riff is the product of a drummer trying to come up with a riff and then having guitar players transcribe it. It was like Jimmy, like trying to get his point across by like slap bass in the guitar and like not really playing a riff and then kind of leaving it up to us to figure out how to actually turn these into notes. And, you know, Sin picked out these notes actually made sense and were able to be played fast. And it was kind of more like a rhythmic idea that, that Jimmy had, you know, to the best of my recollection. Um, but that's what happens when you let a drummer write a riff with, with minimal guitar experience. It's kind of more like, it's kind of more like just like banging on a piano, hoping that we can, you know, understand what, what he's doing. And, and we did. And that's one of my favorite riffs. Like that's a, such a cool, unique riff and it's so big and heavy and stompy. And you can tell it was written by a drummer. As you well know, we don't do things in a linear fashion on tracks, but let's go back to the very start of this song. Afterlife opens with sweeping, stirring strings that beckon you into the song. So here's Sin with how that came to be. We're always kind of, you know, you you aim to take, you know, like a quartet and then make it our own because a quartet, you know, what do you do with the violin? Well, I like the nasaliness of uh, a viola, you know, which is more mid-range, but I want it to be a viola or I want there to be two or three cellos um, because it's the weightier strength. They just all have their own timbre, I guess is maybe the right word, but tones and timbre. And, I, and this was all Jimmy. He just had kind of a rogue quartet-ish sort of thing that we uh, we bastardized in the writing process, and it translated those unique arrangements of stringed instruments, the cello being the star, um, translated to real instruments um, in the studio that mirrored what we what we thought we needed to change about a quartet in the writing process. It actually translated perfectly which uh, I've always been proud of. We don't think, oh, we need a, a string quartet and let somebody go do it. You know, it's, we're very picky about the orchestration, the arrangement of it and, and how the different instruments speak. And we prefer to have them speak in a more unique, unique way, but it's natural, you know? So I don't know. He, I think he crushed that part and then it integrates into, into the bridge, reintegrates into the song uh, very nicely. So it's not like you just have this random intro, which we're very guilty of at times on different songs. Um, it's very much um, necessary and a part of this song. And uh, Jimmy really just had a, a masterful perception of the entire song from the beginning. This was our first embarkation of doing the producing of an album ourselves. 
We had a couple of great engineers. We had Fred still working with us, who worked on, with us on City and uh, Waking the Fallen. And I think maybe just because of the fearlessness that we had going into it, I mean, we're coming off of our first real huge success off of City of Evil, our first platinum record. And that's when we go to the label and say, we're going to produce this next one ourselves. And uh, for a lot of times, especially given the time, we're all very young. We're in our early 20s. Uh, for them to have that kind of confidence, go like, uh, can they really do this? And then we just went in there and had fun. I mean, this was the first time of our career, I feel like, where we really started to experiment through the uh, studio space. I mean, in the entire record, we we set up in Burbank, this giant fucking place. I mean, doing doing songs like Little Piece of Heaven, where we're smashing bottles in the corner, that was, was real. Like, the laughter... Uh, from Jimmy in this song and afterlife towards the at the end of the solo at, at the end of the bridge before we go into that final chorus is him and Matt laughing over and over. we were doing in the studio I feel like translated to the fans for whatever reason I think that they saw that we were gonna do things differently from then on like we can't as, as I said we came off the success of City of Evil and we didn't make another city we went in and made something completely different and we're like and so and as I said self-produced and just had fun with it and so we moved to the music video for Afterlife while the guys haven't been in their last bunch of videos, which we've done entire episodes on the video to nobody and Zoe Katz joined us at the end of the Mattel episode, if you want to know why that's the case, this particular performance-based video had a tarantula, some doves, and what may or may not have been a dead girlfriend. Here's the explanation. We filmed that in, like, mid like tour like we came in for like a day and i just remember like i had seen the, the the treatment and i was like he's gonna release doves and i was like all right how, how are we gonna do that i've never held a bird really before <laughs> i was like i don't know but they got they got they got like animal handlers there and they're like hey this is how you do it and we filmed it a couple of times but it was cool i mean i just remember i remember feeling a little uncomfortable about it to be honest because i was just like is this cheese? It goes back. Is this too sugary? Is this cheesy? Like, why am I releasing these dubs? Like, why am I the one releasing the dubs? And then, but then we all had different ones. And, you know, Jimmy had his tarantula on his face, same handlers dealing with that too. And, uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> I remember the first few times I just laugh, like, as I do it, it's just like, because <laughs> it seems kind of silly. Like, in post, it looks a lot cooler than when you're just like sitting there, like, on, you know, holding a bird and you just go, like, oh, you know, like, I just kept trying to think. I couldn't help but think of when when doves cry. All, all I could think about was was Prince the whole time, I was, and it made me laugh. I don't know, but uh, it was. I mean, it was a different video too. I mean, we all. This was also a time when we were really focused on everyone having their vignettes. Uh, we were working with uh, Wayne Isham again on this one, and uh, you know he always loved working with Wayne. I mean, he always 
that was a great that was a great heyday uh, for music videos. I think we we got like the last run of it where you can make real concept videos. I, I know that people are still doing it, but I guess to that extent, where I mean that that three sixty uh, flip around camera that went over us as we're performing and stuff, and having the vignettes and having an entire day shoot and weeks after of post and stuff. I I just don't know that that really exist as much as it as it did at the time so really fortunate again to be able to do that and I, <laughs> I remember laughing when when Brian put out his hand a couple of times like we called him the silver surfer if you look in the video a couple of times he puts his hand out like sideways and we're like oh that's a silver surfer move right there we showed up to the shoot in our tour bus and none of us would get off the bus I don't know if we were tired we were hung over we were <laughs> whatever we didn't want to get off the bus but we had, you know, written this idea for the video as we do for everything video wise. And there's a scene that I wanted to kind of be dancing. Cause at that time I was wearing bow ties and I wanted to fucking put on a tuxedo and dance in a, you know, that's what I like. I like that Frank Sinatra shit. And, um, when we got there, I wasn't thrilled with the person that they had hired for me to dance with. So I, I was like boycotting. I was like, I don't want to be in the video with this person. And it was just because I'm particular, you know, and I was like, I had a beautiful girlfriend at the time. And I was like, I want to dance in the scene with my girlfriend. You know, that was the last scene that we filmed that ended up being filmed about a full 24 hours after the shoot started. So I had to stay up for like 24 hours. And then we filmed that scene. Everyone else was already asleep on the bus and getting ready to drive to the next city. And I had been up for like 24 hours to film that scene. And, uh, a lot of fans, I think, started catching on that in the nightmare video, there's a scene of me dancing with a skeleton in a straight jacket, basically tying back into the afterlife video. And that's kind of like a little bit of an Easter egg that I'm not sure if people caught on to or not. But it was like, you know, afterlife, you know, you're in this dream scenario with a beautiful girl dancing in a bow tie and a beautiful dress. And then in the nightmare video, it's like it's all gone to hell because you're living in a nightmare. So it's kind of kind of a cool story. Um but that video was fun. You can tell, you know, during the performance shots, as, <laughs> you can tell that me and, and Sin Gates are progressively getting drunker and drunker <laughs> if you watch that video. Cause we start getting kind of like cross-eyed and kind of like goofy as we're like, like rocking out. But you, you know, that's, uh, that's for fans to, to take a closer look at. Afterlife is a song that will be played on American rock radio until there are only cockroaches walking the earth. It is a song that at festivals, all of the casuals, the people that aren't there for our band, they still know every single word to this song. On the current Life is But a Dream touring cycle. Not everyone will know the two new songs that open the set, but when you need a song to bring every Everyone into the room and get them lost in the moment you call upon afterlife. So what makes Afterlife such a special moment? That's a tough question because I have my reasons, but I think at the end of the day, 
what it really comes from is the fans. They chose that song as, as a fan favorite. You know, they, we've been playing it for a lot of years. Uh, I love playing that song live. It has so many different, it does have a lot of different vibes. It goes a few different places and live it, you know, I'm especially like, uh, with, with a lot of the, It just feels epic live for for whatever reason, and uh, I think that and it has a lot of energy. Um, so it just it I think it just captures everything from that era very well. Uh, it's got the duels, it's got the poppy chorus that we covered, it's got the very different sounding three part verse, um, the the elongated chorus, and of course Zach, as I said, Zach and Brian doing great duels, and then Brian's solo on it is just ridiculous It's a very serious moment for us and could be the most serious uh, moment on the record. I don't think even dear God gets us. It's like floating up above and there's these songs that are kind of floating, almost easy touches on it a little bit. Critical acclaim, mm, it's got serious moments, but the entirety of Afterlife is is very serious, yet the juxtaposition of those melodies and how they kind of came up and and the almost too sugary chorus and the what's the deal with this fire verse. And then it's like got the most serious, you know, dark blue purple tones to me across the board. All these different types of chaos from sugary pop chaos to joke lethargy hungover drunk induced chaos to wild solos and intensity in the studio and it just congeals into this really weighty and and beautiful masterpiece of a song there's certain elements of city of evil that don't carry a lot of weight and and this is me speaking on like when i think of like terms to describe it it's like hyperspeed the mix is thin um purposely because it's so fast and there's so much going on and then I think there's a weightiness to the White Album and a sluggishness of some things that they both are great, cool records. Um, but there's like, on one end, you have like this thin sort of hyperspeed thing and another, you have this weightiness. I think Afterlife fits perfectly in between those two. Like it's got one leg in City of Evil and one leg in the White Album. Um, and I think there's something about the energy and the... Um, the back and forth, there's a traditional metal element, but it's wrapped in this really colorful wrapping paper. So I think it just really works. Um, and I think that has translated to people in a way that 
can kind of transcend both those records and kind of be the one thing that kind of kind of connects those records, which are two records that people hold in high regard in our fan base. Um, so to me, that's probably why it works really well. I don't think there's many songs that do that for us in a way where, because we kind of cut the cord on the record before and move on. Afterlife seems like one of those things where it can bring along everyone from the old record and everybody in the new records totally cool with it. Okay, so as promised, music theory with sin and seeing as this is the portion of the show where we discuss the more technical aspects of the playing and the songwriting on Afterlife and seeing as we've just generally accepted the word weedly as if it's an actual word when it very, very much isn't. Mr. Sinister Gates, what in the ever-loving fuck is a weedly, goddammit? <laughs> What's a weedly, goddammit? A weedly, um... Well, for Jimmy, his was a willy, willy, willy. It was dilly, dilly. He liked, uh, um, well, I got a fucking guitar here. Uh, so this is going to sound like shit on a podcast, but weedly. That's kind of like. I think it's a diminished, I think it's got a, a dim, uh, diminished scale uh, vibe to it, which is a symmetrical scale. Um, it goes up in minor thirds in perpetuity. And so and that's what a symmetrical scale means. It means it doesn't have a whole step, then a half step. It's all, all the same, the same intervals, each different um, ascension or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it was a kind of just a phoned in sort of thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. Um, I kind of knew it was a diminished scale and I just kind of went for this dark and evil thing. I, I thought at the time it was a little on the cheesy end, but he loved it. And you just trust Jimmy. And then coupled with the melody, it makes, it just makes it work. You know, I won't sit here today and be super pessimistic. Um, old, 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 old man Gates, you know, yells at, yells at the clouds Hey, <laughs> this is progress. We're getting better. This is something I like, actually. Um, yeah, so so it starts off a little cringe to me, um, you know, because I I like to rework stuff. You know, I I like to get it to where where I love shit. And it and Jimmy didn't have the patience. Matt also didn't have the patience. He loved it, or either loved that Jimmy loved it, which either is very possible. But you know, if we're gonna and it's gonna be that, I mean, it, to me, it's a little generic. Um, but again, with the melody that came came across, um, which is not diminished, uh, which is almost atonal with that drop. Da, 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 da. That's very much um, a, a vibe and a, a rhythmic approach as opposed to a melodic approach. so simplistic on the surface level compared to other Avenged Sevenfold compositions, certainly with today's Avenged back catalogue, but it feels like a song fueled by drama 
more than technicality. The strings make it dramatic from its very beginning, but it's still tough. How did you find that blend for making it all work cohesively? If I knew, I would have done it fucking 20 more times. You know, I, I, wish, I, I wish I could say, you know. Um, it did springboard a different philosophy. <clears throat> we knew we could get a little bit more serious and we knew we could write deeper stuff. Um, the next album after Jimmy passed, I think we were writing more serious songs rather than city of evil, which is just taking bombastic punk rock stuff and big harmonies everywhere and big guitar harmonies everywhere. Um, I think uh, we wanted to deepen the songwriting for self-titled, which it is deeper. There's some darker moments, but we were more focused on expanding into, you know, our more outlandish influences, you know, bringing a lot of hip hop, involving a lot of hip hop. That was the first time we really involved a lot of hip hop influences. But when you're listening back and you have songs like Almost Easy, um, Afterlife, um, even Gunslinger a little bit, although the, the guitar is a touch novelty. I'm not allergic to it. That's what it was intended to do. But almost like being less novelty, um, you know, moving forward at times. And, and, and basically what that means to me is like finding our own voice, which not to plug the new record, <laughs> but that's to me, and I know I'm in the middle of it, but uh, that's finding our new voice. Even the stage, I feel like was finding... Um, really our voice. And I felt like this was the beginning of finding our, our own voice. But I, I do think that we regressed after and went kind of more traditional when we, when we could have kind of, there was a fork in the road. Are we going to be the next Beatles or are we going to be the next Metallica? And I do think that we made a concerted effort. I, I don't think we were naming those bands at the time, but we definitely went more in the Metallica route, which, uh, you know, when we were writing kind of the, the stuff, it wasn't as pleasing to me, but, but it was pretty incredible to see Matt and Jimmy, um, on nightmare working and writing some brilliant stuff. Maybe, like I said, not in the vein or the eclectic nature is like self-titled, but nightmare is an unbelievable record. And, and Jimmy and Matt had a lot, uh, to, to do with that, which is, which is great, you know? So each album had their own dynamic. I feel like self-titled was more of a me and Jimmy project, Nightmare more of a Matt and Jimmy project, you know, and then you have uh, Wake in the Fallen, which is a, a lot of Zacky and stuff. And so different relationships on, on each record, which is, which is, you know, we're very, very lucky to have that. And it really, uh, it, it really complements the eclectic nature of, of this band is that everybody can go fly on some shit um, and bring some really unique, amazing uh, art to the table. But we got a lot of great, um, great stuff out of Jimmy before he passed on, on Nightmare. Um, so it gave him the confidence. Afterlife really gave him the confidence to, to write um, in a style that he thought he couldn't write, which to me, it's style-less. You know, Avengers is whatever the fuck you want, to, want it to be. Um, and Jimmy definitely, with those two records, made shit his. The 
thing that I wanted to close out this music theory part of the show with is that I was lucky enough to talk to the one and only evil Joe Brazy, who is, of course, the producer for Life is But a Dream, and he remarked upon how much you love going to the studio and creating as a band. And one of those things that binds all of the records in Avenged Sevenfold's back catalogue, no matter how different they are stylistically, is that everyone shows up. Nobody is sending their parts across in a drop box. So even being a very technologically minded band, like both creatively, especially on the new record and with how you present your band, there aren't many bands that are more technologically minded than Avenged Sevenfold. And yet everyone wants to be there in the flesh and be part of the creation of the magic that goes into Avenged Sevenfold songs. Do you think that was one of the things that made this song what it was? Because just a few friends fucking around drunk and in a cabin in Big Bear and then blam, before you know it, 30,000 people are singing that part of that verse back at you because it's now part of a generation-defining rock song. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great point. And um, I don't think we've really spoken about this. It's a, it's a really, really great point. When I say that I wrote a song or Jimmy wrote a song or Matt or Zachy or Brooks or Johnny, what I, what we don't really, what the unspoken truth about it is, is that everybody is there contributing so much to those songs, whether it's structure, whether it's production, orchestration, so yeah, to, to have that unquantifiable camaraderie and firepower in the studio is fucking next level. I just doubt that there's another band with that, you know, and that's what makes us so lucky. And that's why we can keep going because nobody lets anybody get old at this point, at least <laughs> we have to keep things fresh and interesting. We are very, very highly allergic to sounding like anything else at this point, um, and to sound and and we're highly allergic to sounding um, artificial. If it's not a natural song, natural orchestration, natural filter that it all goes through, that's making you know all of our hair on the back of our neck stand up, then we're not letting it into the fucking universe. It's just not going to happen. And that type of a filter, those types of checks and balances, are super super unique. And and you know I don't take that for granted in the slightest it's our superpower and that's it for another episode of tracks thanks for being with us do go back and check out the older episodes for all of the inside stories on the songs that you love directly from the band themselves you can't find these stories anywhere else of course New US tour dates are out now with Poppy and Sullivan King joining us on that tour. Death Bats club holders have already had the easiest experience possible getting tickets. We hope that you can join us too. Subscribe to the show, give this a thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Tracks. <laughs>